Hey, it's Greg. This is the Square Pizza Pod, cooked up by Shermco. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Square Pizza Pod. In today's episode, Greg is in conversation with Ruben Agbana, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Marcy Lab School. The Marcy Lab School is an immersive education program designed to prepare low-income students of color for full-time careers in fast-growing tech professions, such as software engineering, data science, and cybersecurity. Marcy Lab School's Software Engineering Fellowship is free across the students, thanks to the generosity of their supporters. In today's episode, you will learn about Ruben's workout routine, his experience with Teach for America, Marcy Lab School, and what makes Marcy Lab unique from other alternative college programs, boot camps, and workforce development programs. There's a lot of insightful information in this episode, so we hope you enjoy. Further, Ruben, thanks for joining the Square Pizza Pod, man. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, been a gonna be a pleasure. Been a pleasure. Um, long overdue. Uh, where are you coming from today? Uh, coming from uh, the Marcy Lab School HQ in Brooklyn, New York. Um, but of course, you know, born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina, so mm-hmm. in the South. Um, yeah, and always my family's uh, from Nigeria on my dad's side and Louisiana on my mom's side. So coming from all over the place. Yeah, I like that. Um, we're always conspiring to get you back at least for a weekend or something at some point. Um, all right, man, as always, first things first on the Square Pizza Pod, asking some semi-random questions. And this is more selfishly okay. for me. Um, but every time I see you pop up in my feed, the shoulders, the biceps, the chest, <laughs> the, the chest are getting larger. And so I, need to know, I need to know if this is a special shirt that I need to buy yeah, or, it's, or, it's or there's the a, a special workout routine in Brooklyn I didn't know about. So tell no, me what's happening here. You, you just got to buy big shirts and you look bigger. Big okay. Yeah, the Niklo Arism oversized t-shirt is my, my secret weapon. Nine ninety five. All right, man. You heard it here first. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna need that link because uh, you either you either got the lighting right or the shirts or the push up routine is, is serving you well. Shirts, man. Shirts. Okay. <laughs> humble as always. Humble as always. Um, and then before you know, kind of we go into kind of who you are and how we got to this point, but I know you guys have secured some pretty major um, partnerships to continue the great work. Um, of Marcy. So for, for, you know, we'd love for you to talk about that. And maybe I think what I saw was Salesforce as well. Yeah. Um, we, um, um, for, for those folks who don't know, we operate um, a year long alternative to college. It's a full-time uh, academic program uh, designed to serve students who otherwise would be in a four or two year college institution. Uh, they study with us for one year um, and it's a kind of 360 technical curriculum and leadership development curriculum, uh, everything that we think makes the best out of a college experience. Uh, and stripping away the things that we think are, are not as useful. Um, on the back end, we partner with companies, get them hired into the types of jobs that typically require a four-year college degree. And on average, our students earn a little over $100,000 per year uh, immediately after they graduate from the program. Um, and most importantly, it's tuition-free. Um, tuition-free because we're sponsored by some incredible companies and uh, private foundations that believe that the tech sector needs to be more diverse, that believe that um, higher education is the right pathway for so many, but not the right pathway for everybody. Uh, and one of those companies is Salesforce. Um, Salesforce is one of the companies that you know kind of puts their money where their mouth is. And when they talk about equitable employment pathways and diversifying the tech sector, uh, they're one of the leaders in that market. And so we're um, you know, happy to be an inaugural member of their Catalyze cohort. Um, the founders of the company, kind of straight from the top, they decided to put an investment into 
uh, nonprofit organizations that are doing work in some fashion at some stage of the employment pipeline to ensure diverse uh, engineering talent and technical talent in the sector. Uh, so they came with an investment into the Marcy Lab School that, you know, again, helps us offer this uh, program to our young people um, tuition free and uh, the partnership opportunities to ensure that those folks have opportunities to work at Salesforce on the back end. So, um, yeah, Salesforce is a great partner and have done a great job of telling our story and elevating uh, the impact that we're making. And that's incredible first and congrats to you and Maya and the rest of the team. Um, and I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask anyways. Um, in, you know, in terms of advice to other leaders uh, in similar seats as yourselves doing work in the space, aspiring to kind of get um, partnerships at that level, um, what advice would you offer to them? Oh, that's a good question. What do you think I was going to say? Well, I think you were going to say just uh, keep your head down and do the work. And once the results are there, um, those partnerships will come. For sure, yeah, I think that's a given. But there's there there is some strategy to it too. Okay, right? okay, we'll see. That's why I asked them. That's why. Yeah. No, for sure, that's, that that was a good one. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we the work is a given. It's important. Um, I think it's like this like this acknowledgement that there is bias in the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. uh, folks are coming into this work. Uh, on the corporate side, with the intention uh, to do right, but like with years and years of conditioning about what's possible for uh, folks that come from the communities that we're serving. And so when Maya and I first started in 2019, we knew the end goal was to get companies to give us a lot of money to train students and then eventually hire those same students. But we knew that was going to be a big lift because of what we assumed they were going to believe about our young people. But of course, we knew that they were awesome. And so we kind of had this like almost like Trojan horse model, like our first ask always is just come in and volunteer, come hang with us, come see what we're about. And, you know, nine times out of 10, uh, if a potential employer partner um, can get in the building, uh, interact with uh, our students, you know, especially if they're, you know, given exposure to their, you know, academic prowess and their hard work and their potential, they're going to go and become, they, they move from volunteers to champions and they kind of help navigate internally the right um, you know, structures to make sure that we can get the funding or the employer partnership, whatever it is that we're looking after. And so like a bit of advice is like, you know, we, we, we kind of tend to always have the end goal in mind and, and we have to keep that, but know that sometimes it is a um, twisting, winding journey that can mm. oftentimes start with a low hanging fruit ask. And probably not an overnight situation, right? It's some, a relationship you're cultivating for some time. Yep. Uh, six months, 12 months, sometimes mm. longer that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes, um, you know, we've seen this in our work and just connecting with others in the space is um, folks seeking funding to support the work, knowing they have to keep the lights on and payroll. So sensitive to that, but want a kind of quick transactional um, exchange of ideas and money and maybe not understanding the value of relationship building over the long term. Yeah, no, I mean, I, we, we had to learn that as well. Um, it, like it took us a while to realize, oh, man, we always have to be thinking six to 12 months out. Hmm. So like, you know, in, in this moment now, like I'm thinking about, you know, what has to be true in order to support the, you know, 100 or more students that will serve this year that will graduate in, you know, uh, September of 2023. But like every day, I'm also thinking about what has to be true for us to grow to support the students who are going to graduate in September of 2024. And the asks that we'll have to make are bigger, the hiring partnerships that we'll have to establish are bigger. And like we, we, we kind of need to begin planting those seeds right now, which is 
you know, again, especially, you know, in nonprofit land, we are, you know, always thinking about finances. It's hard. It's like a, it's like a privilege or a luxury to, to be able to think long-term. It's like also a necessity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before you and Maya founded this incredible work, um, you know, you and I share a common experience with Teach for America and we've had other Teach for America alums on as well. Yeah. Um, and can speak, you know, probably for days just on that, but curious kind of how your Teach for America experience was and what you took away from that. Oh man, it was everything. It kind of, you know, it, it set me on the path, um, you know, that I'm still on now. I was an econ and finance major uh, as an undergrad. Uh, I went to Duke um, in uh, the early 2010s. And at that time, if you were an econ major, you wanted to work in investment banking. And so I was like, okay, well, this seems to be where the money's at. Let me see what they're talking about. And I had uh, a couple of really you know, um, great internship experiences where I grew professionally and acquired some tangible skills, many of which that I, you know, still lean on today. I know my way around this machine is a Microsoft PowerPoint. But um, man, um, doing an investment banking internship before my senior year, it became very clear to me that that was not my calling. It's not not what, um, you know, God had in plans for me. I think, um, you know, for those folks who don't know, it's like a, a career where folks routinely are working 80 to 100 hours per week. You get paid really well, but it is all consuming work. And I'm the type of person where like, you know, in, in, you know, I'm the type of person where like my work has to have personal meaning for me in order to be, in order for me to be willing to like invest like my time, my energy into it. And um, I just didn't care about it enough. Mm-hmm. I remember um, one day I, I shared a, I shared an office uh, with um, another intern, intern named Matt, and he went to um, he went to Bentley, the college that's like down the street from Harvard. And he's one of those like he like knew that he wanted to do this, and like he snuck into Harvard's career fair so he could meet a J.P. Morgan recruiter like he had, and versus me. And I'm like, yeah, respect, respect the hustle. Yeah, respect and, the hustle. Exactly. <laughs> like, he loved it. Right. Me, you know, coming from Duke, it was like, oh yeah, like you know, this is what you do at Duke. Yeah. And uh, I remember one day. Um, he came into the office after me and he was like, I, I got it, Ruben. I was thinking about this in the shower and I finally figured out how to balance this model that I've been working on all week. Um, and I remember thinking like, damn, of all the things that I might be thinking about in the shower. That ain't it. <laughs> is very, very low on the list. And I remember it hit, it hit me like, oh, I'm never going to be as good at this mm. as that because I just don't care as much. Mm. And you know, um, and, and so at that point, I went back to campus and I was like, I just don't want to do this thing that I, I won't be great at because I don't care about it. I, I was lost, didn't know what I wanted to do. I've been doing a lot of mentorship and tutoring work in schools because it was a passion of mine. Um, Teach for America recruiters uh, were all over campus looking for seniors just like me who didn't know what they wanted to do and they got me. And I'm like, okay, yep, this sounds like a great opportunity to be a full-time mentor for two years. Um, and so I applied to the core. Uh, and was placed in Atlanta to teach at a um, performing arts school um, in East Point. It was an incredible high school, out- outcast what's that high school. Um, and within, you know, my first semester there, I realized that, you know, this was so much more than being a full-time mentor. My, my students needed more than just mentorship. This was an opportunity for, you know, me to be a part of you know, uh, correcting, you know, centuries old disparities and inequities. And I, I just loved the work I was doing. I was 22 teaching 17 and 18 year olds and like mm-hmm. the connection that I felt I had, the, the impact that I felt like I was making. I'm like, this is, this is, 
you know, there's something here. Like I, I feel on fire about this and I feel like I should stick around. And I've been in education ever since. That's great. I mean, I love that, you know, I sometimes call like those micro moments in life, like whether it's your roommate talking about that shower experience, but either you choosing like that moment right there that led you to go back to campus and think about TFA rather than continuing in that investment banking path. Um, obviously put you on this path where you were today, but if that micro moment went a different way, yeah. right? who knows? Yeah. Um, so then from, you know, TFA, now we're in Marcy. I mean, there's other things that happen, of course, but you and Maya have birthed this incredible organization. So for the three people in the world that don't yet know about the Marcy Lab School, can you please give us an overview? Yeah. Um, and and it, it very much so, like the seeds were planted from my time uh, mine and Maya's time in the classroom as teachers and as leaders. Um, this, um, so I'm, I'm from North Carolina. And so, you know, um, Raleigh, Wake County Public Schools, you, you go to the high school that is closest to your house, generally speaking, and more than likely, you know, it's going to be a pretty good high school. Uh, I moved to New York uh, because my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, got into graduate school good. up here. Uh, and um, I, I found like a public education system that felt like the wild, wild west compared to, you know, little old Wake County mm -hmm. and, you know, their public schools and selective schools, and independent schools and charter schools. And it was all like kind of free market for those folks who don't know in high school in New York, you can go to high school anywhere in the city. You know, it's like an mm -hmm. open application process with, you know, various different criteria depending on the type of school that you want to attend. Um, I was drawn to um the um, public charter school sector up here um the kind of large the larger charter management organizations the the kips the uncommon schools the achievement first of the world because when i was a teach for america core member in atlanta um, those um, recruiters and leaders from those networks would come down to atlanta because we had a very diverse core and they would say you know when you finish your two-year commitment here in atlanta um, if, if you find yourself up north you should come you know consider teaching at one of our schools um, we send 100 percent of our students off to college at the end of their time here and i remember you know um, working at a school with like incredibly talented educators who worked very hard around the clock and we were like hustling to get 60 maybe 70 percent of our students just to graduate from high school mm -hmm. and you know, frankly, I was like, bullshit. There's no way that you're doing the same work that we're doing, serving the same students, getting those outcomes. And so, you know, I said, if I if I get the chance, I've got to I got to go see it for myself. And so, you know, I find myself in that sector when I moved up to New York. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, we we did, you know, send 100 percent of our kids off to college. It was hard. And yeah, it's you know, these were um, schools that um, were open admissions, but through a lottery process. And so not completely apples to apples, but, you know, these were students who are, you know, coming from backgrounds with various uh, disadvantages, but uh, through you know, will and determination and incredible cultures and systems at these schools, we had very, very high college matriculation rates. Um, but it felt like there was this um, kind of unspoken truth um, that, that we weren't prepared to have a conversation around, which was that like our students were going off to college, but not all of them were doing well. Mm -hmm. You know, you had some students who went off to great colleges and they had great outcomes. Uh, they graduated on time and then they ended up getting great jobs. Um, and then we had a lot of students from really strong, smart, hardworking backgrounds, a ton of potential, and would go off to these colleges and then fail to reach their full potential. Uh, they'd either leave uh, a year or two in 
or if they were lucky, they would graduate and then like be underemployed. Um, you know, maybe working in food or retail or working in, in, in some career, generally speaking, that wasn't making use of the degree uh, that they attained. And it was like this, this, this burden that they carried. It was like they would come back to the high school and almost like wear the shame on them like a, like a jacket. It's like they felt like they, it's almost like they felt like they were letting their community down. And, you know, it, it was around the time when uh, a lot of a lot of the big charter networks were beginning to publish their um, persistence uh, stats, and it was alarming. And mm. you know, it what educators do, we, we kind of internalized it. We said, well, perhaps our high schools aren't doing enough to prepare students for the rigors of college, and that's when like kind of college readiness as a term uh, kind of became very popular. But then when you looked at the data across the country, it's like, you know, our persistence rate were at 50%. That was high compared to the, the 30% retention rates for black and brown students across the country. It's like across the country, like less than a third of black and brown students who are going off to college each year were graduating in four years. Yeah. A little more than half were defaulting on the student loan debt that they took out within 10 years. Mm. Um, this was disproportionately affecting black, Latinx, uh, and low-income students. And, you know, at a certain point, it's like, man, when, when will we take a look at the system and say, maybe we, we got it wrong when we said, like, college for all. Maybe all colleges aren't that good. Mm-hmm. And so we asked this question, we, we me, my, my co-founder, Maya, um, the, the heart uh, of the Marcy Lab School, we asked, like, what could potentially a better version of college look like for these young people who have a ton of potential, but are likely to end up at colleges that routinely leave students in debt and underemployed? we create a better version of college for those two students. And so uh, the Marcy Lab School was essentially a pilot program designed to answer that question. We've just been trying to grow ever since September 2019 when we launched. And that day one of, okay, Maya, we're opening a different sort of college. Mm-hmm. Had to be <laughs> exhilarating, scary. Wondering like the first like pitch meeting, take us in when you're sitting across the room, like me and my partner here about to open a new college. What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, well, first of all, um, Maya always laughed. Like, my, yeah, Maya always, so Maya was the seventh person I asked to come do this thing with me. Okay. Like, oh, this is good. I didn't know this. Okay, oh, good. Yes. Yeah. So seven. And like all six <laughs> folks before, um, you know, I they they weren't my, you know, the universe just kind of gives you the thing really? that, you, that, that you need. Like without Maya, um, this wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. And it's like, you know, you, you, you find the people you need by circumstances outside of your control but it's like one i'm telling people hey we're going to start a school that's going to be like college but better but it's going to be shorter and it's going to be free it's like well that sounds stupid and two by the way we're going to make it a non-profit we're not going to go raise venture capital dollars because like, if we do that we're going to have to make the program real cheap we're going to have to sell it to a big ed tech company and it'll be soulless and lifeless in five years and so they're like well so you mean i can't get rich off of this is like no, but like maybe if we do it right, we can pay ourselves a nice salary. But that's probably about it. Nah, bro, I'm not. I'm not doing this. <laughs> but 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 I, but I'm with you. I support you. I wish you the best. You know what I mean? Very much so that. Um, and yeah, and in Maya and I, um, we were both working at Teach for America at the time, and I was obsessed with this idea. And so I had like spent like hours and hours each week over the course of many, many months, like having conversations with people, documenting my learnings, writing them up in a proposal. I put, by the time I sat down with Maya, I had this like 40 page, like long form proposal about the, the state of the industry, the state of higher ed, the problem, uh, the proposed solution. And just like, you know, 
talked to her about it and she was like, man, this sounds really, really cool. I was like, really? Okay, take this home and read it and then come back and let me know. And she came back, she was like, yo, this sounds amazing. This sounds like so much fun. Um, let's do it. And I was like, for real? Okay, well, let's try it out. And um, yeah, the rest of history. I mean, it's almost like your own shower moment from your roommate where we started this conversation. You couldn't, yeah. um, that is what you were thinking about instead of balancing the model in the financial industry world. Yep. Yeah. 100%. And, and Maya was right there with me. And I think um, the reason why I say that, like, we wouldn't be here without Maya and this wouldn't be what it was, this wouldn't have been successful without her, is that she came at it from a completely different lens. Um, in my mind, this was like, this was this is like an arbitrage opportunity. This was like an opportunity to like, like take advantage of inefficiencies in higher education. Like this was, you know, meeting employer demand on the technical training side. This was thinking about where the cost centers are in colleges and how can we strip them away. Um, and like all of that's important. And like Maya was like, oh, this is an opportunity to like reimagine what happens in school after you leave high school that can for the first time be centered around the experience of this human being. Like, how do we create a structure that was like designed to like lift up someone who has gone through a system that has like structurally knocked them down for the past 18 years? Like, how do we position them to be able to walk into uh, a new social setting, a new corporate setting, um, and feel like their lived experiences are actually value additive to this new environment? Um, and that's actually the core of what we do. One of my favorite books in grad school was called X Teams, and essentially the premise being the the best teams, whether it's sports teams, executive teams, or nonprofit teams or anything, um, are diverse in nature, both in nature of thought, but racially and economically of where they come from, but also create a safe space to have conversations to push the teams further. And no, your whole team probably fits into that, but knowing you and Maya can imagine um, how well balanced you guys are on, on those ends of the spectrum that allow you to continue to push the organization further. Yeah, definitely. You know, we, um, you know, once every quarter we get into like a really big argument and we don't talk to each other for, uh, I was gonna say, but no, no, you, you both are like the kindest, softest spoken know, that's that's that, like, I know, like, I would love to see, <laughs> I would love, I would pay good yeah. money. To see a Ruben Maya fight, it's oh, got to be, the, be the nicest, kindest fight <laughs> disagreement of all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, I'm the only one who gets Maya's smoke. It's like she takes it from the world, and it's like, here, you know, Ruben, you can handle this. Which makes it all the worse. I paid good money. It's pay per view coming. Um, <laughs> so you know the naysayers. Although we don't have any naysayers, we have all supporters on the podcast, of course. Um, but I've heard about kind of alternatives to college, right? Whether it's like, yeah. you know, workforce training program, workforce development, boot camps, that sort of stuff. Um, and I think you guys are you are um, selective and not using some of those phrases, but curious, like of the secret sauce of what makes Marcy unique compared to maybe others, you know, in this space. For sure. Yeah, there are a ton of folks who have come before us that have been like uh, incredibly transformational in the lives of so many uh, young adults, older adults, and, you know, Marcy wouldn't be here without the inspiration that those folks provided like them. One, I think about the existing sector of like the, the kind of for-profit coding bootcamp model, very much so an inspiration behind the Marcy Lab School. I was a teaching fellow at the Flatiron School for a summer, mm. um, and that was like my first introduction to this like new model of education for a career changer that was, you know, providing an outcome for a student um, which was a high paying 
job in the tech sector for someone who didn't study that formally in college. I was like, oh, I didn't know that existed and that's possible. You know, I saw, I became obsessed with that sector um, and saw the data that like, you know, this was specifically designed for a, a, a very, you know, a clear archetype of a person. This is a career changer who is financially in a position uh, to be able to pay fifteen dollars to $20,000 for a course, take three months off of work and be able to transition quickly into a new career. Most for-profit coding, like the kind of general for-profit coding bootcamp sector, the average age of an attendee is 29 years old. Uh, a little more than 60% have college degrees. Um, and, and, and again, they're financially in a position to be able to afford one of these things, both in terms of money and time opportunity costs. And so you can make some assumptions based on um, those factors about who these people are. Um, one, um, you can assume that they've come from some previous like professional corporate work setting. You know, you can assume that you don't have to work with them on like, you know, how to network, how to handle a one-on-one -on -one with your manager, how to handle an email inbox in a Google calendar. Uh, you can assume that, you know, given their financial standing and, you know, their professional standing, that they have uh, a network. They're coming in with, with a set of best friends from college. Like they actually probably know people who work at the tech companies already. They stayed down the hall from them in the dorm room. They just majored mm -hmm. in CS while they majored in political science. And so you don't have to invest as much in, in terms of the career placement options because they're kind of coming in with a, with a certain level of social capital, given where they are. Um, but I knew that there was something to that academic model. It's like, well, what, can we take, you know, this thing that's really unique, which is like a really targeted, tailored, you know, uh, practical, um, technical curriculum informed by industry, and then wrap around that the best parts of the college experience that we can fit in this model so that it can be designed for young people. We thought about um, the folks who are in the nonprofit sector. They're a ton of like incredible um, uh, workforce development programs that are in the nonprofit sector that have been uh, making an impact on in young people's lives for a really long time. Folks like Gear Up and Empower, for example, um, for Scholars. Um, and uh, those folks are uh, historically have found a sweet spot in preparing young folks who uh, traditionally um, probably weren't considering college before um, for uh, a career path that has a you know pathway upward. You think about roles like an IT help desk technician or a network admin. These are entry-level jobs in tech, and they may pay somewhere in the realm of like $17 to $19 an hour starting off, which is like a good first job for someone so long as they have the support to continue marching upward. What we thought about was like, what about a young person who was like otherwise going to attend a four-year college, a degree-seeking student, a $17 or $18 an hour job, even you know, with a prospect of no debt, isn't aspirational for them. It's not, a, it's not a, a strong value proposition. The question that we're trying to answer is like those young people who aren't necessarily gonna get into one of the top colleges in this country, they may not qualify for full merit-based scholarship at their local college, but have a ton of attention nonetheless. Can we provide an option that like is a true, like, you know, um, you know, a true value proposition for them that's uh, not college, but is gonna lead to a college-like outcome? And it's been successful. You spoke to some of the data, but wondering if you could share, you know, one or two data points um, that come top of mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our, our students are, are landing jobs that otherwise would require a four-year college degree, and they're getting paid commensurate with that. Um, you know, we're, we're young. We are just three years old now. Uh, we're entering our fourth year. Um, but over the past four cohorts that we've served in those three years, our students on average are earning um, a little over $106,000 per year. Uh, they're 19, 20, 21 years old when they graduate. Um, they're working at companies like Asana and Squarespace and Spotify and WW and JP Morgan and the New York Times. 
And these are companies that come back to us every single year to hire our graduates. Um, and it's an incredible salary for you know anybody, right? Coming from maybe a middle class or higher upper class. Um, and different racial backgrounds, but the students you guys are serving, this is probably life-changing money and maybe perhaps salaries that nobody in their families have ever hit before. Is that fair to say? Oh, man. It's like, one, like like you said, for, for anybody, a first job that's in that range is like a, is an accomplishment. They're like this number of companies that will pay that for, you know. So $32,000 somebody was making in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools in 2008 oh, yeah. as a, as oh, yeah. a teacher. Yeah, my, 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 yeah, my first job was $37,000. Yeah. 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 Um, but it, it's like, you know, I, I'll say this. When we first kind of pitched this idea when it was first kind of formulating the mind, I sat the team up and we started um, kind of pitching this around the city of New York. We said, you know, we want to make this huge investment in young people early, shortly after they graduate from high school, because programs like this, they tend to target students who are a bit, uh, students who are a bit older. Um, you know, and people are like, man, you think 19, 20 year olds can be capable of this, 21 year olds? And we're like, well, we have to, because it's like, if, if we can put our students in a position to like begin earning early, it's like then they have an opportunity to accrue wealth. They can they can take care of their families, but like they don't have families of their own to take care of most often. That means they can begin to like they live at home for the first couple of years afterwards and help their parents pay rent, but they're saving a lot of money. And it's like, you know, how do you accrue wealth? Like you start early. Like what, you know, what's the first personal finance lesson you learn in, in class? It's like, well, retirement like counts. Like those first few years of your career really matter, even if you're earning a little bit, like compound interest works, you know? Um, and so like, man, you know, we had two students who just got job offers from uh, one of our partners that have hired from us every single year. Every single year they get job offers out, 150,000 as a base salary. And they have the healthy comp stock uh, package as a part of their compensation you know, 150,000 living at home. Like, you know, the students come back and say in our first year, we saved $70,000. Yes. You know, they, they have retirement, they have healthcare, you know, hopefully, you know, their equity runs up. It's like, oh, we're looking at, like, this is a visual of what it looks like for a young person to move from like financial vulnerability to like real, like a shot at financial independence. Yeah, one thing, right, to make that much, but then to be able to save it and have the maturity and understanding of how money works and the personal finance of it when you get something like that you haven't had before to harness it, to keep it to your point is another skill set that's so critical. Yeah. And by the way, it's like, you know, we, we we're small. And so we target uh, a sector, like a small subsector of like tech roles that pay this salary. But a $70,000 job with no student loan debt is like an incredible first job for an 18, 19. Yep. So it's like a, a ton of room to like expand the possibility for what's possible in different roles, different titles with the same model. And I want to talk about this. I mean, admire you for a number of reasons, right? Building Marcy, your upper body workouts, um, but also like leading the team. And so, you know, we've stolen you. I think I emailed you about this. If I didn't, I apologize, but I'm pretty sure I did professionally stolen your FAQ idea nice. when hiring. Love that. Um, but know you're really intentional with like communication and transparency with your own internal team that you all are building and something I really admire. So curious about like why you choose to do that and how you navigate being so transparent in a workplace that can, from the onset, looks cool, but can't always be as rosy as, as maybe what uh, some people assume it to be. Oh, yeah. Um, one... <laughs> 
um, the the Walker family in New Orleans is like we 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 owe so much of the success uh, of the Marcy Lab School to them. Mm -hmm. Aaron Walker started Camelback Ventures, yep. uh, one of our earliest supporters. Previously uh, on the podcast, and an nice. episode number I don't know, but we will get that in the show notes. Right. <laughs> nice. um, and then Evie Walker, his partner, his wife. Um, is the founder of O4, um, a talent um, recruitment and overall kind of HR strategy consulting company. Um, and um, he brought her in for one of our last sessions when we were in the Camelback Fellowship. This was back in 2020, er, early 2020, when um, it was still just me and Maya. And we were thinking about making our first hire. And um, she was leading a session on like what your hiring process should be. So it was just like right at the right moment. Um, and this role, we were looking to hire um, a software engineering lead instructor because up until that point, Maya and I had been teaching the classes and we did a pretty decent job, but like, you know, no, you know, not tech people. We came from Teach for America. So it's like, we've got to find somebody who actually knows what this, what this space looks like to help us scale this thing out. And, but the problem is, Greg, as you can imagine, these people are used to making a lot of money. They're used to working at companies that you know give you free snacks and kombucha and have slides in the middle. You know, it's like right. this ain't none of that. And yeah. you know, I'm, I'm asking Ify, like, how do we make Marcy sound shiny? There's also no stock compensation, you know, like there's no equity package that comes along with this. That's yeah, And so I'm asking Ify, like, oh, how do how do we make this, how do we sell this for someone who otherwise is going to be considering a flashy tech startup or a big tech company? And she's like, Well, you don't. You, you lay out the mess for them because there's only two of you all. There's no place to hide the mess. They're going to see it shortly after anyway. And so you might as well be up front and you'll be surprised that the right person is going to see that mess and see themselves in it. And I don't know if it really like hit me as profound in the moment or it was more of a like, well, we have nothing to lose. You might as well try it. Sure. Uh, but like there was something refreshing about leaning into transparency and um, our first job description um, we um, used her model of an FAQ and like transparently answer the questions that I would want to know if I was thinking about teaching at a school. Yep. You know, what does the curriculum look like? Mm, like, it ain't much. Uh, what are the systems you have for like lesson planning? I don't know. You tell me. We're going to ask you to create them, you know? Um, just like really transparent yep. about what we're And we found um, an incredible instructor. Uh, her name was Anne Zwang is Antoine. She's uh, now um, our VP of software engineering education and manages mm -hmm. all of our technical teachers. Um, but she had come from a background as a, as a software engineer in practice and then left and worked at a for-profit for coding boot camp as a software engineer instructor and like saw the mess that was our FAQs and was like, oh, this is me. Like, this is my mess. I love this type of mess. And we're like, yo, we love you. And it, just, <laughs> it was a match made in heaven. And it was just me, her, and Maya for a little bit longer after that. And the team began to grow. But it was like, oh, this is what it looks like. The right people are going to see this and be like, this is me. And, the, and then the people who we wouldn't want will see this and say, I'm not ready for this. And, and that's that's good to get mm -hmm. that out the way early. Because how bad would it have been if we sold this to something that it wasn't, got the right person or the person we thought was the right person, they left in three months. And so then that brand of transparency just became like, our way of operating and it started when there were just like three or four of us at first it was like you know like why should Maya and I be hiding these decisions behind closed door there's only four of us five of us six of us seven of us and so we built like an internal communication system that was designed to be just like super transparent mm -hmm. 
um, the first time we were getting ready to like, we had enough money to actually like, give people raises. We're like, well, let's just put it all on a spreadsheet and show people what, you know, we're making. And that, I think some of that came from like our insecurity as leaders. We were like, oh, we don't want people to think that we're, you know, paying ourselves a lot. We're not paying them. But there's also like this idea of like, you know, um, in our, in our salary transparency, them, our philosophies out there somewhere on the internet. Um, but there's also this idea that like, we also want to be a place where people get paid equitably and mm-hmm. that can happen if people check us on certain things. Mm-hmm. And we want to give you the ammunition to check us. And then to your point, like, it ain't always pretty. Sometimes people check us, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, that's what the people want to hear, Ruben. Talk about being checked. Sometimes people <laughs> that's what the people want to hear. Yeah. 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 It, you know, our, our, our folks working team. And so like our, the philosophy is like, we can't like we we don't do like kind of performance incentives and like we don't pay based on how much like we value because we, like we love everybody like how can we put a price tag on like you know one person sacrifice like this this is a team effort like can't necessarily pay our partnerships person based on like the success of his job placement uh, statistics because that's directly influenced by the technical instructor who teaches those young people and the program manager who supports those young people in the recruiting and so like disaggregating impact and like all of those would be too hard to do equitably mm-hmm. and so we lens on the stance that we want to be market competitive for specific titles and roles and so what that means is like our technical roles because those require those demand a higher salary uh, in the market like are paid higher mm-hmm. so you know sometimes our non-technical folks will come to me and say I see this is what this person is making and this is what I'm making. I want that over there. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, well, first of all, thank you for bringing that to me. One, like I much rather them bring that to me than to, sure. to yep. stew on it and then leave before we get a chance to talk about it. Sure. It's like, oh yeah. Like, well, th- this is why this person gets paid that, but here's a pathway I can see for you because like, man, you're adding a lot of value. And in fact, we've been thinking about ways that we can elevate your leadership. Um, and then there's the other big question of like, okay, if, if this comes up enough, like we might have to rework some things because mm-hmm. if this becomes unworkable for the team, then like, you know, the philosophy is broken. And so, yeah, we, we've had some hard conversations for sure, but I, I guess I'm glad we were having them as opposed to people having the behind closed doors leaving. Yeah, I love so much about that. And I imagine the team members that work with you, whether they've, you know, fully um, are, are paid at the level in which they aspire to or currently want at least have to value and can't fault you and Maya as the leaders for creating a space to be safe, to have a conversation, to bring that to you. And then of course it's on them to understand if that leadership pathway is right for them um, and if the culture fits for them. Yeah. Oh, and then the other thing, uh, Greg, uh, people say this, but it's really interesting to see it as like a hirer for the first time, like white folks do ask for money in negotiations more than folks of color. Folks mm-hmm. from privileged backgrounds do feel more entitled to ask for more money. And like they ask for it with such a level of confidence that like, you know, it can feel like you will lose this person if you don't succumb to that. And that's how pay inequity can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that pay transparency has created for us is like the conditions to be really equitable about that. It's like, yeah, I, I, I know that this is your, your negotiation for more, but like we have a, a, a policy of transparency. And mm-hmm. so like, I can't give you this unless like it is justified by your title experience or yep. some other factor. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's been able to help keep our, you know, our, our salary and range. And, and then the last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, this has worked really well as we've grown from a team of, you know, three, to a team of 20. Mm. And so, oh, it's group. Yeah. 
And so now we're at like, now we're at like the breaking point. It's like, okay, well, we, we've kind of seen what the career pathways for our different like kind of standard roles look like. Yep. And uh, the next level of transparency is probably a bit more, you know, s- structuring or standardization of our career ladders. Yeah. You know, you'll, you guys will figure it out what got you to 20 won't get you to 40. And you guys know yep. that. And so figuring out what, right, what will scale, what makes sense. Um, yeah, we'll knock that out. Um, let's get, get you out of here on a few, hopefully fun questions. What's one thing our audience can do to support the great work of Marcy Lab School? Oh, man, if you work at any company that has computers, we probably have um, mm. a student who could be an employee at your company. Um, and, you know, any connections that you can make uh, for us that would be to employment opportunities for our young people would be greatly appreciated. Um, you can put my email in the uh, show notes and they can email sure. me directly. I can um, you know, put our partnerships person in the show notes too. But um, yeah, any any connections for for our young people will be you know incredibly impactful. And minor clarification: need to be in Brooklyn or can be located in Charlotte or Toledo, Ohio, or where? We, you know, this post-COVID world, like we have you know students who are working for companies in Denver and North Carolina and California who have never left New York. So, yeah. What musical artists are you listening to right now, Ruben? Oh, man, I'm always listening to a lot of Drake. Okay. Um, listening to uh, a lot of Afrobeats, Burner Boy, Wizkid, Asake. Yeah, listening to this, this, this young kid that the youth probably listening to. His name is Yeet, Y E A T. Okay. It's is great music. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, New York based, Yeet, Y E A T. Y E A T. He's from LA. that's my it's my my gym album okay good to know good to know uh last one what does square pizza remind you of Uh, the good old days greg the good old days man yeah being in the cafeteria and then you know beating on the table and freestyling with your friend you're one of those in in lunchtime absolutely yeah Yeah. that's great and then also as my yeah it reminds me that's the first memory and the second memory I think about my middle school classroom with me, you know, taking students, ask, requesting students who bring their own lunch to let me get their square pizza because it was nostalgic. Mm. That's real. I appreciate that. Any final words you want to leave with the audience, Ruben? Um, no, this is like, I, I feel like um, I have like an incredibly fun job. It's just like, it feels, I still feel like fortunate and lucky and blessed to be able to just go to work and be able to work on this experiment of building a workplace that is like fun and inclusive and a school that's fun and inclusive and leads to the right outcomes. And yeah, I feel like, feel like we're, we're really just at the beginning of this and got a lot to learn. Yeah. It's been awesome seeing how much you guys have done in just three years, but excited to see what the next 30 will bring, um, not only for you and Maya and the team, but for the students you guys are serving. So thanks for everything you're doing. Yes, man, I appreciate it. Thanks, Ruben. Thank you. Thanks so much for checking out the Square Pizza Pod, making a few selfish requests. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about the podcast and share this with a friend. We appreciate it. Thanks.